Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the 2020 lead, President-elect Joe Biden, today heading to his beach house in Rehoboth, Delaware, with his family. No public events scheduled, while outgoing President Trump is tweeting furiously not just falsehoods about the election, but literally deranged and debunked conspiracy theories. Trump still refusing to acknowledge the plain fact that he has been defeated by President-elect Joe Biden and has, for the most part, Mr. Trump, withdrawn from public view. The coronavirus pandemic, meanwhile, is getting worse. But President Trump is still refusing to develop any new plan to combat this crisis, with several more of his own advisors contracting coronavirus after attending campaign events around Election Day. So, in essence, President Trump appears to be desperately, even pathetically, fighting to keep a job that he has no apparent interest in responsibly performing. And while most Republican lawmakers are completely enabling this behavior, a small number are now doing the bare minimum by acknowledging the simple fact that President-elect Joe Biden won. Let's reiterate this for viewers out there who might be worried because of this unprecedented, unhinged behavior by the outgoing president. Legal experts, Democrats and Republicans say, there is no credible path for Donald Trump to challenge the election results in all, or even really any, of the states that he needs to reverse their results so he can win the election that he clearly, legally, and legitimately has lost. Now, officials in the White House know this and acknowledge it privately. Republicans in Congress know this and acknowledge it privately. The only questions remaining are the extent to which President Trump will continue to be a sore loser and the lies that he will continue to tell his supporters on his way out the door. But none of that is going to change what happens on January 20th, when President-elect Joe Biden takes the oath of office and moves into the White House. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, one person who spoke to President Trump is now describing the president as dejected over his rejection by American voters. President Donald Trump remained behind closed doors today with no public appearances on the horizon. He hasn't taken questions from reporters in over a week and hasn't spoken publicly since last Thursday. Instead, he's waged war against the election from his phone, firing off tweets claiming without evidence the race was fraudulent as his advisors privately wonder how long he'll keep going. Sources tell CNN the president has been dejected following his loss, but has continued to meet daily with political advisors who are doubtful their legal challenges will succeed. Several said it's only a matter of time before Trump acknowledges his loss, but they believe that will come with a tease that he'll run in 2024. When someday I leave, whether it's in four years, eight years, 12 years, 16 years. As Trump holds out, more people in his party are urging him to accept defeat. Fox News' Geraldo Rivera posted this message telling his friend his hard-fought race has come to an end. You came so close in this election but time coming soon to say goodbye with grace and dignity. Carl Rove, who advised the Trump campaign this year, wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that Trump should do his part to unite the country by leading a peaceful transition and letting grievances go. At least five GOP senators are now publicly calling for Joe Biden to receive access to classified briefings the Trump administration has blocked. And if that's not occurring by Friday, 
I will step in as well and to be able to push and to say this needs to occur. The White House press secretary, who is paid by U.S. taxpayers but appeared on Fox News today as a Trump campaign advisor, referred questions about whether Biden should receive intelligence briefings back to her own office today. Has the president considered that? Um, I haven't spoken to the president about that. Um, that would be a question um, more for the White House. As Trump fights his legal battles, the White House is still dealing with the fallout from an indoor election night party now tied to several cases of COVID-19. Today, political advisor Corey Lewandowski tested positive, making him the seventh person who attended that party to do so. Now, Jake, we have not heard from the president in person since last Thursday. I can't tell you how rare that is in the four years covering this White House that we have not actually seen the president come out and speak to us directly. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot going on behind the scenes. And right now the buzz is whether or not the president is going to fire CIA director Gina Haspel. He's been unhappy with her for some time now. He's been telegraphing that that is something that he could be doing, especially recently over her opposition to declassifying documents related to Russian interference. Though ultimately that decision is President Trump's and President Trump's alone. But Jake, I am told there have been many discussions inside the White House over the last few days about whether or not Trump should fire her. And while Republican lawmakers are coming to her defense on Capitol Hill, there is not a lot of defense happening for her inside the West Wing at this moment. That's right. Gina Haspel, the CIA director and other intelligence officials are saying that to release this information would compromise sources and methods for intelligence and thus national security. Uh, but there are others in that building uh, that have other priorities besides national security. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We have more breaking news. Sources are telling CNN that the president is getting conflicting advice from his most trusted advisors, his adult children, about what to do next. On one side, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. On the other, apparently, Ivanka and Jared Kushner. CNN's Pamela Brown joins me now. Pamela, uh, what is the conflict here? What are the president's children arguing? Well, we're seeing the difference in approach publicly, Jake, with, with tweets with Ivanka, from Ivanka Trump and then her t- two brothers, Eric Trump and Don Jr. But uh, my team, me and, and my, my colleagues, uh, Gloria Borger, Dana Bash, Betsy Klein, Kate Bennett, uh, we are told that behind the scenes there is also a different approach in talking to the president as he tries to figure out uh, how they come to grips with his loss in this election. Our sources are telling us that Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared, are really trying to navigate this delicately that they have accepted uh, that he has lost, but that doesn't mean they want the legal fight and the, and the recount not to happen. They want that to still happen, but only for future elections to ensure integrity for the future. They they know they have accepted that, that uh, President Trump lost, and so they want it to be, they want to figure out a way for the president to save face and have a graceful exit. On the other hand, you contrast that with uh, Don Jr. and Eric uh, Trump, where they have been much more aggressive, much more gun-ho. They want want an aggressive fight. They want to do everything they can uh, to change the outcome of this election. They still believe there is hope to do that. And so you're getting these competing, um, you know, suggestions to the president. But it is important to point out, Jake, that Ivanka Trump is someone that the president, as we know, relies on heavily on a myriad of topics uh, as he has been president, because she's also one of his only children, his, his only child, I should say, who is in the West Wing acting as an advisor. But we do know that behind the scenes, Jake, he also has started to come around to the idea that he has lost this, even though we don't think he's going to concede. There is a lot of discussion and acceptance about figuring out a way uh, for this to all end, Jake. Well, I I don't understand fully because um, if Ivanka and Jared are focused on 
uh, having, allowing the president to save face and providing him with an off-ramp um, to lose with some dignity. It's a little late for that. I mean, <laughs> that ship has sailed. The question is just how much less dignity uh, can he leave with? Do you have any sense of, of why and how Ivanka's approach is different from, mm-hmm. from Don Jr. and Eric? Right. And and look, they're not going to be able to change him. Right. And even before this election, the president said he wasn't going to accept the results if he lost, that it was rigged. One um, one aspect that he's thinking about in all of this is he feels like Hillary Clinton never acknowledged that he won the election. So he doesn't want to give that dignity to Joe Biden. Um, that's all part of you know the thinking and the discussion in the White House. But for Ivanka Trump um, and for Jared Kushner, frankly, they're thinking about their futures. Um, Ivanka knows that her her future is very much tied to her father's. Jared Kushner has done a lot of work in the Middle East in that portfolio um, <clears throat> during his time in this administration. And they don't want that all to just be undone by Joe Biden if uh, there is not a better exit. But as you point out, we are how many days since Election Day or since the race has been called for Joe Biden? And the president has still not accepted uh, that he is the president elected and still not paved the way for the transition to go. But there are certainly discussions going on behind the scenes among the president's children and advisors, Jake. You can't even compare it to Hillary Clinton, who conceded the night of the election and Obama and uh, the Obama administration began letting the transition process happen. At this point, Four years ago, Trump had visited Obama at the Oval Office. You, you can't. Okay. Yeah. I get but it. let me just, you're yeah. right. So, so Hillary Clinton did concede, and that is what I point out to sources who bring this up as, as some sort of comparison. Uh, but in the White House, the feeling is, and I'm just conveying what they are, are saying, is that Hillary Clinton talked about Russian interference and, and Comey and so forth, and therefore, um, you know, didn't they feel like she did never acknowledge that Trump actually won, and that has stuck with him. And we know, Jake, he holds grudges. Well, she conceded, and there was Russian election interference, as every U.S. intelligence agency con- um, concluded. Anyway, Pamela Brown, I, I know you're just con- conveying. I'm, I'm I know just you're the just messenger, re- Jake. I know you're just reporting. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. For the first time as president-elect uh, Joe Biden today, uh, the president-elect spoke with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer about COVID-19 and economic relief so desperately needed by so many Americans. The Democrats pledged to be in close touch in the coming days. It's just the latest signs that the Biden administration, which is incoming, and the world are moving full steam ahead. Uh, as CNN's Jessica Dean reports. President-elect Joe Biden on the move today, leaving Wilmington, Delaware for his beach house. On Wednesday night, Biden announced his first major hire, naming longtime aide Ron Klain as his chief of staff. In a statement, Biden described Klain as invaluable, adding, quote, his deep, varied experience and capacity to work with people all across the political spectrum is precisely what I need in a White House chief of staff. Klain said in a tweet he was, quote, honored by the president-elect's confidence. Biden and Klain share a long history, dating back to 1989, when Klain served as chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, including during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. More recently, Klain was Biden's chief of staff when he was vice president and served as Ebola czar in 2014, a critical asset given the current coronavirus pandemic. The Trump administration response to this crisis has clearly failed. Meantime, Biden continues to mull his selections for cabinet secretaries. Senator Bernie Sanders is ramping up his campaign to become labor secretary, telling CNN he would say yes if offered the position. If I had a portfolio that allowed me to stand up and fight for working families, 
Would I do it? Yes, I would. President-elect Biden said he hopes to name some cabinet members by Thanksgiving, with more decisions coming later in the year. Meanwhile, Biden today spoke with Pope Francis, as he is set to become only the second Catholic president in U.S. history. As for other foreign leaders, State Department officials tell CNN a stack of congratulatory messages are sitting at the State Department untouched as the Trump administration continues to block the Biden transition team from accessing those messages or using the department's resources. Also today, the Biden transition team throwing some cold water on some comments from one of its members of its COVID-19 advisory board. Dr. Michael Osterholm had said in a media interview uh, that if the government could cover lost wages and small business losses, that a four to six week lockdown could do a lot to drive down coronavirus numbers here in the United States. But a Biden transition aide telling CNN today, Jake, uh, that that is not in line with the president-elect's views and, and pointing out again, there are a number of members of that advisory team. Jake. All right, uh, Jessica Dean, thanks so much. Coming up, Joe Biden's deputy campaign manager, what the Biden campaign can do if President Trump continues to refuse to concede and acknowledge reality. Plus, while President Trump seemingly does not does nothing but furiously retweet, a major U.S. city is telling everyone to stay home again as the United States continues to shatter COVID records, the worst kind of records. And then before you make your Thanksgiving plans, you may want to look at what's happening in Canada right now. We'll explain next. We're back with the 2020 lead. President Trump continues to refuse to accept reality and concede. And President-elect Joe Biden is proceeding with the transition anyway. Joining me now is Kate Benningfield. She's deputy campaign manager and communications director for the successful Biden campaign. Um, congratulations on the victory, uh, Kate. I know it was a, a long you. slog, but you uh, it went according to your plan. It did. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. It's it's a great moment for the country and we're we're all very happy. So thank you very much. So President elect Biden says he does not need the presidential daily brief uh, that the transition is proceeding the same way as if Trump had conceded and the transition process were going according to how it went in 2016 and 2012 and 2008 and 2004. At what point will this become a problem, the Trump administration refusing to acknowledge the reality? Well, as Joe Biden said, we're moving forward. Um, you know, we are able to do the core things that we need to do to move the transition forward. You know, you saw him announce his COVID task force. They are getting to work thinking through how we implement the plans that Joe Biden laid out during the campaign to get the virus under control. You know, you saw him uh, last night announce his chief of staff. We are moving forward uh, with the transition. I think, you know, uh, obviously there are pieces of the transition that, uh, you know, it is it would be important for uh, for Donald Trump to concede. I think symbolically for the country, it's important for Donald Trump to concede. But I want to be really clear, it does not prevent us from being able to move forward. You know, are there pieces of the work that, uh, you know, that we need to get done? Yes, there are. And we're confident that ultimately we'll get there. Um, but, you know, we are moving forward and uh, there's nothing that is preventing uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from setting up their transition, from moving into their transition and then ultimately setting up their government in January of 2021. One of the members of your coronavirus task force, um, Michael Osterholm, he's an expert on infectious diseases. We have him on CNN uh, all the time. Uh, he said that a four to six week lockdown of the country might not be a bad idea if the government could step in and pay uh, all the shopkeepers and uh, others who need the, the revenue that they would lose 
Um, is that something that President-elect Biden is considering, a four- to six-week lockdown? Well, I think he laid out very clearly across the course of the campaign the things that he wants to do to get the virus under control, including uh, encouraging national mask mandates, including providing resources to small businesses and schools to ensure that they can open safely. He laid out really comprehensive plans to get a national testing infrastructure in place to ensure that we're testing and, and working to keep people uh, uh, you know, who've been exposed from spreading the virus further. So he's put forward his own plans that uh, are going to get the virus under control and are going to get the economy moving again. Um, obviously, he is listening to uh, to the very best advice from scientists, from doctors. Again, you saw him announce his his COVID task force this week, uh, and he's going to be informed by the, the best expertise and public health expertise out there. But, uh, you know, he's going to move forward on the plans that he laid out in the campaign uh, that people overwhelmingly voted for in this country. But what does that mean? No plans for uh, a lockdown, but that could change. Uh, I mean, he's on the Michael Osterholm's on the task force. There are steps that we can take now, again, encouraging people to wear masks. We've seen study after study shows that people wearing masks inhibits the spread of the virus. That's a really important step that everybody can take uh, starting now to try to inhibit the spread of the virus. So there are things that Joe Biden has put forward that will make a difference uh, and that he's focused on. Now, of course, is he taking advice? Is he hearing from the best uh, you know, public health experts uh, who are advising him? Of course, and he's taking that into account. But he's put forward really aggressive plans uh, that he intends to, to implement in order to get the virus under control. I want you to take a listen to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy today. He, he quoted Biden's words saying that access to intelligence would be nice to have, but is not necessary right now. And then McCarthy uh, added this. I think I kind of stand with Joe Biden. I'll trust the intel community. He's not president right now. Don't know if he'll be president January 20th, but whoever is, will get the information. Obviously, the idea that, that Joe Biden isn't going to be president on January 20th is nuts. Uh, there's the House Minority Leader suggesting that it's possible. Um, Joe Biden is the president-elect. He'll be sworn in January 20th. Presumably, Kevin McCarthy knows that. Is there any risk that in your campaign downplaying the importance of this transition, you are giving Trump's enablers ammunition to argue that this insane behavior is no big deal? Well, I don't think we're downplaying the importance of the transition at all. We're talking about all of the things that we can do to move forward to ensure that we are having a smooth transition. And I think, um, you know, what Kevin McCarthy said, as you kind of noted there, Jake, is incredibly disingenuous. I mean, you have Republicans who are looking at the overwhelming victory uh, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won this election by uh, and suggesting somehow that uh, they're not going to be sworn in uh, in January of 2021. It's disingenuous. Um, and it's irresponsible. And I think, frankly, they know better. So, you know, we're going to continue moving forward with our transition. We're going to continue moving forward, doing the work of the American people. You're going to hear uh, Joe Biden next week, uh, you know, as you heard him this week, talking, for example, about his commitment to build on the Affordable Care Act. So you're going to hear him continue to talk about the things that he's going to do as president, the things that, frankly, a historic number of people in this country voted for him uh, because he talked about those things that he's going to achieve. Uh, and he's focused on that. Uh, and so I think, you know, as you see Republicans out making these disingenuous statements, you can also look at, for example, Republicans like Karl Rove, who are writing today that the Trump campaign needs to give up the ghost on this and that it is time to transition. Right. But, so, you know, Karl you know, Rove, we are, we are gonna, you don't forward. have to work for, with. I mean, Joe Biden is talking about it's time for the country to come together. It's time for the country to heal. He wants to work with Republicans, Democrats. That's the House minority leader. That's the House Republican leader. That's who Joe Biden, president-elect Biden, is talking about reaching out to. 
and he won't even acknowledge that Joe Biden is going to be sworn in on January 20th. I think that he is going to feel the pressure from his constituents just as uh, others all across this country are going to feel. I mean, people overwhelmingly voted for the Biden-Harris ticket, but don't forget they also overwhelmingly voted for unity. They overwhelmingly voted for uh, a leader who can find consensus, who can make progress, who can actually move the ball forward. So that is that is overwhelmingly what the American people said they wanted in this election. And I think for uh, Republicans who are choosing to, uh, again, I think be incredibly disingenuous in this moment, they're going to feel that pressure from their constituents too. So, you know, Joe Biden is going to focus on the things that he can do to, uh, to, to move this country forward, to make life better for working people all over the country and to get this virus under control. Those are the things he campaigned on. Those are the promises he made, those are the commitments that he's going to keep. To be clear, I hope you know, I'm not holding you responsible for this insanity. I'm just pointing it out. (laughs) Uh, It is indeed insanity. So thank you for acknowledging that. Kate Benningfield, thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate it. You know the crisis is serious when international organizations such as Doctors Without Borders are going in, except this time they're coming here to the United States. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is next with details on the COVID crisis. Stay with us. In our Health Lead today, the record-shattering numbers of COVID cases and hospitalizations in the United States are spiraling so far out of control that even international aid workers from Doctors Without Borders are coming to the United States to help us. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, despite increasing optimism for a vaccine, Dr. Fauci is now warning this deadly virus will likely never fully go away. We know that these informal gatherings of family and friends are actually what's contributing to this latest surge. I don't know how much more we can sound the alarm about what's going on here. Well, here goes. More than 144,000 new COVID-19 infections yesterday. In a single day. Yet another record. Since November 1st, more than 1 million Americans have been infected. Hospitalizations now at an all-time high. I admitted more patients with COVID-19 on my last shift than I ever have. And the death toll is climbing. He looked at us, he smiled, and he gave us a thumbs up. And that was the last memory that I have of dad. This wave dwarfs the spring and summer surges. I doubt we're going to eradicate this. I think we need to plan that this is something we may need to maintain control over chronically. Certainly, it's not going to be pandemic for a lot longer because I believe the vaccines are going to turn that around. And in the meantime, a national lockdown. But less than half of Americans are very likely to comply to stay home a month, according to a new Gallup poll, down from 67 percent in the spring. There is no appetite for locking down uh, on the American public, but I believe that we can do it without a lockdown. We used to talk a lot about hotspots. Now, almost the entire country is hot. Average case counts rising in 44 states. We've seen huge spreads from funerals, weddings, um, just people getting together to watch football. All these colleges were supposed to play Saturday. Now they're not because some lineups are just so depleted by COVID-19. There's also a surge up in Canada, sparked in part by their Thanksgiving held in early October. The CDC now says the best way for Americans to give thanks this year is online. The good news is that next Thanksgiving is going to be fabulous. It's going to be the best ever. Uh, This Thanksgiving is going to suck a bit. 
also probably no national lockdown, but Chicago just issued a stay-at-home advisory. In Ohio, where they've had a mask mandate since the summer, the governor says they are now going to start actually sending agents out to enforce it. And in New York, the mayor says that he's preparing to close schools down again if necessary, if the positivity rate in that city keeps on climbing. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Uh, Sanjay, you called the surge a humanitarian disaster today. How, how dire is what we're facing, is what we're, what we're about to go through? Well, you know, it's, it's already so dire, uh, Jake. You, you see the numbers. We've been talking about these numbers for a long time. And we have projections on how much worse things are going to get. I, you know, I've been here for, uh, you know, 20 years, 19 years, and I've covered a lot of humanitarian disasters. You know, the, the tsunami in, in South Asia, the Haiti earthquake, the famine in Somalia. This is, this is the worst in terms of overall preventable deaths. Uh, it's obviously, you know, been spanned out over a year. But, you know, you just look at what we have, we, have, we have seen in terms of humanitarian disasters around the world and understand what is still likely to happen in this country. And I'm talking about the United States specifically with regard to our, our over, the overall impact of this pandemic here. It's, it's on par with some of the worst humanitarian disasters we've seen around the world over the last you know, quarter century. It's so depressing because not only is this also predictable, uh, it was predicted. We've been talking about this since February uh, and the insufficient ways that the Trump administration has dealt with this crisis, whether testing uh, or contact tracing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I want you to take a listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci earlier today. I doubt we're going to eradicate this. I think we need to plan that this is something we may need to maintain control over chronically. Certainly, it's not going to be pandemic for a lot longer because I believe the vaccines are going to turn that around. So explain what that means. We're not going to eradicate it, but it won't be a pandemic much longer. Uh, what does that mean for the average right. American watching us right now, wondering when life is going to go back to some semblance of normal? Well, you know, I think what, what he's saying and what, you know, we have sort of realized about this virus that it's so contagious, it's so it's become endemic. It's going to be around, you know, us, uh, you know, in perpetuity, perhaps. I mean, even, you know, the H1N1 flu virus, which comes back in, in, uh, in the flu season, is a, is a derivative of some way progeny of the 1918 flu. So these viruses stick around. They're so contagious. They don't go away completely. But we do gain control of them, meaning they beca it becomes much harder for them to jump from person to person to person. So still there, but is not spreading robustly in communities anymore. That's, that, that's what he means by, you know, no longer a pandemic. But the virus is, you know, it's, it's a contagious virus that's going to be a part of our lives now, I think, you know, going forward. We can get control of it with all the public health measures we've talked about, and the vaccine will be another important tool. But, you know, as, as we've talked about, Jake, that's, you know, sort of second quarter of next year, probably. So more than 65,000 Americans are currently hospitalized with coronavirus right now. We've seen increased hospitalizations in COVID hotspots, but never this bad nationally, never this many people mm -hmm. at this one. What would happen if hospitals across the country, as a lot of people are afraid are going to happen in their, in their neighborhood hospitals, if they become overrun? Th that is a situation that um, uh, either hospitals, some hospitals are already dealing with or are you know planning to deal with because it looks imminent. What, what happens is 
uh, a crisis sort of scenario, uh, Jake. You know, you have a situation where you, uh, you know, have field hospitals in Texas and Wisconsin. Uh, people are looking at uh, large public buildings to see if they can serve as triage centers. Some of the same things we saw in April, uh, you know, in New York and other places around the country are likely to happen in more places now around the country. North Dakota has 20 to 25 ICU beds total. Jake, that, that, those uh, Midwestern states are some of the hardest hit in the country right now. They send patients out of the state first, out of the region second, but they, they, they have to try and build capacity right now, Jake. So that's, that's, that's the plan. And it's unfortunate because, as you point out, it didn't need to happen. And it was just a few days ago that uh, we hit 10 million uh, cases. Now we're up to 10,441,000. I mean, it's spreading. It's, everything's going in the wrong direction, 242,000 deaths. And yet, President Trump, nowhere to be found. He's made no public comments on COVID since he lost the election. And even though his COVID task force met on Monday, they have not briefed the public in weeks. How bad of a position will we be in by the time President-elect Biden takes over uh, in January, on January 20th? Yeah, I mean, I, I spent the weekend looking at a lot of these models, Jake, seeing what the similarities were, what could reasonably be expected by throwing a lot of public health interventions, non-pharmaceutical interventions, as they're called, at the situation now. What, you know, sort of you conclude is that sort of by the end of this year, this is actually according to the IHME model, by the end of this year, and I mean on December 31st, we would be at over 300,000 newly infected uh, COVID patients a day. 300,000, okay? Uh, as you know, a few weeks after that is when you start to see the, the, uh, the highest hospitalizations. We think we could be at double the hospitalizations that we are right now, uh, you know, by the end of January. And sort of by mid-February, as you know, Jake, more than 400,000 people, they think, uh, would die from this, would have, would have died from this. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to even say that out loud. That would make it the worst humanitarian disaster. I showed you those numbers earlier. 20 years we've been covering these types of stories, it would make it the worst that we've actually, uh, we've actually incurred. I mean, how is it not a dereliction of duty? The president, I mean, this is going on right now. It's getting worse. It was all predicted. Everybody's been sounding the alarm. President Trump has not announced any sort of revamping of testing, revamping of steps needed to be taken, contact tracing. Uh, what, what should he be doing right now? Well, I mean, there is, you know, I'll be honest, if, if it were me, and I'm probably glad that nobody thinks it should be me, but, but I would hand this over to the Coronavirus Task Force and the CDC and say, get to work, do daily briefings, let the American people know what's happening, create a national strategy. You know, nobody likes to hear the term lockdown, but there are some places that are spiraling out of control right now. Figure out if you can do circuit breaker sort of lockdowns, surge testing into those areas. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you see in, in Ohio, they start to redline and they talk about mask mandates. We saw the same thing in Arizona. We saw Delaware. I don't know if we have this graphic, but in Delaware, I just, I just get these hyper-local examples because I think it makes the case. They were surging. They were a metaphor for the country, 150% increase in overall cases. They did the three things, not forever, but for a few weeks, mask mandate. They stopped large public gatherings and they, and they, uh, they had broad contacts tracing. What happened? They had a 100% decrease in deaths, Jake. 100% decrease. Decrease 88% in hospitalizations, 82% in cases. It took about three to four weeks to see the manifestation of those interventions. It doesn't happen right away. Um, it's not like a painkiller, but it does, it does work. And so 
we know it works. We need to apply it nationally. And, and we need to do it now because these numbers are horrific. I, I, I had to tweet that out today. This is a humanitarian crisis. The doctors without borders, they look at a globe and they say, what are the hottest spots on earth? That's where we go to help. They're here in the United States right now. President Trump instead is retweeting these deranged voting software conspiracy theories instead of doing what he was the number one job for a president to protect the lives of the American people. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. As uh, goes Geraldo, so goes America, said no one ever. But still, some of President Trump's biggest fans are now telling him it might be time to acknowledge what is obvious. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, some of President Trump's most prominent allies are stating the obvious. The presidential race, 2020, it's over. Carl Rove acknowledged in the Wall Street Journal the results won't be overturned. Conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt said Trump needs to move on. And Fox News personality Geraldo Rivera tweeted, time is coming soon to say goodbye with grace and dignity. Joining me now to discuss the Atlantic's Ron Brownstein and Politico's Laura Barone Lopez. Ron, we see more Republicans starting to bail on Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the election, claim all sorts of insane things about fraud that didn't happen. But the point that a lot of these Republicans seem to be making is that the lawsuits and the false accusations of fraud won't work, not that there is anything morally wrong with it. How do you see it? Right. Well, I mean, it is a continuation of what we have seen throughout his presidency. You know, every time he breaks a window, uh, congressional Republicans obediently sweep up the glass and more are coming to kind of in, in, in the vein of acknowledging that gravity exists uh, to acknowledge that he lost the three key states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by roughly triple the margin that he won them in 2016 when the Democrats had conceded. By this point, I would only add that, you know, all of this isn't just kind of indulging the president in a snowflake kind of way of not hurting his feelings. I mean, the fact is that he is focusing on these conspiracy theories and his own grievances at a moment when the pandemic is at the height it it has ever been. And it's almost completely abdicated the responsibility to protect the American people. And then there's also, Jake, the the long-term damage that he's doing to trust in the democratic system with these unfounded allegations. Yeah. Laura, Georgia is going to recount its presidential ballots by hand, uh, and then the state has until November 20th to get that done. One source tells CNN's Dana Bash that the president has no plans to admit defeat until at least that's done. That's another eight days from now. Trump is behind by 14,000 votes. Uh, I've covered a lot of recounts. That's pretty insurmountable as a lead, Laura. Yeah, it's highly unlikely that uh, as Georgia goes through this recount that beyond maybe a few hundred votes here or there, that we would see a dramatic change in what the vote count is at this point. Uh, and, and so, and the fact that President Trump, as Dana is reporting, may not be willing to concede until after that, to Ron's point, just adds to his supporters believing these unfounded and baseless claims about voter fraud. Some 70% of Republicans right now, according to a Politico and Morning Consult poll, uh, don't believe that the election was fair and legitimate. And so that continues to distress among the electorate. uh, And what long-term damage that could potentially have, we don't fully know yet. Uh, And Ron, uh, Republicans talk about how at this point uh, in 2016, Uh, There were a lot of Democrats who were upset that Trump won. Um, Hillary Clinton, we should note, conceded that (laughs) night. uh, And Speaker Pelosi said that she was ready to work with President-elect Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But take a listen to what Trump's allies said about Democrats 
who four years ago were not accepting his victory. Take a listen. Hillary is on her, her sore loser tour, and now we have her going through recounts. You know what she needs to do? She needs to get over it. She lost. Yeah. Get out of the way and let Donald Trump be president. Do you think the Democrats are sore losers? Yeah, I do. The reality is they're a bunch of spoiled crybabies. Newsflash for many of the partisan Democrats and those in the mainstream media who continue to try to delegitimize President-elect Trump's uh, massive and historic win last month. The election's over. Hillary Clinton lost. You know, by the way, four years ago, we were calling him president-elect Trump that night. Uh, What do you make of this? Well, look, I I think, you know, one of the things about the Trump era is that the uh, whisper becomes the shout. And I think a lot of these Republicans are veering very close to suggesting that since they believe their voters are the real America, by definition, any time they lose, it is to illegitimate votes. And essentially what the president is saying is that is that big cities with large numbers of African-Americans and other minorities are cheating cheating his coalition. It's a very dangerous road to go down. Yeah, we heard a Republican senator say, well, Trump might have won the popular vote if you don't count California, which, I mean, I don't even know what that, me- what that means if you don't count California. Yeah. It's a state. You don't count, te- why do you don't count Texas or Florida, you know, on the other side? Yeah, Laura, Republican Senator James Lankford uh, said he would uh, step in if Biden does have access to intelligence briefings by tomorrow. Many Republican senators said Biden should have access to classified briefings. If more Republican officials spoke up, do you think that would change anything for President Trump? It's really hard to say because we've seen so many times where Trump has just, you know, been pushed into a corner and stayed there and he just does not relent and doesn't give up. It would be important for the American public, for Republicans to say that it's he because not getting intelligence briefings. Uh, Biden's inability to get those hurts in the long term. When he takes office, it, it hurts his inability. It hurts his ability to hit the ground running. And there's been evidence from the 9/11 Commission that when there are short transitions, that doesn't help with national security for the incoming president. All right, Laura Baron Lopez, Ron Brownstein. Thanks to both of you. Coming up, a warning from a top medical expert that this Thanksgiving is quote going to suck, and not just for Lions fans. Why you have to start preparing today if you plan to see anyone outside your home. Stay with us. Stay away from Thanksgiving gatherings with people that aren't in our household and that we can slow the transmission of this virus. We really should be thinking about canceling Thanksgiving and just keeping it to our household. The good news is that next Thanksgiving is going to be fabulous. It's going to be the best ever. Uh, This Thanksgiving is going to suck a bit. If you are even thinking about getting together with anyone outside your immediate family circle during Thanksgiving, doctors are urging you to start a quarantine today, 14 days out. Let's bring in Dr. William Schaffner. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Schaffner, good to see you again. Should families be getting together for Thanksgiving? They should be very, very careful if they do that. Less is more this Thanksgiving. It is the COVID Thanksgiving. We don't want to give the virus while we're giving thanks. We want to protect grandma and grandpa, and we do that by keeping ourselves as separate as possible. As much as we would like to get together, this year, separation should be the norm. Please, everybody, be careful. We don't want Thanksgiving to be a spreader event. If people do get together, uh, why 14 days for a quarantine? And, and how strict should you make that quarantine? Can, still, can you go to the grocery store still? Sure, go to the grocery store, but wear your mask. Go early in the morning when there's nobody there. It's 14 days because that's the incubation period of the virus. Should you be infected today, you'll become sick sometime during that 14 days. 
if you last the 14 days and you're not sick, then you're pretty safe. Although it's so, I mean, so many people have it and it's asymptomatic, right? So you need to get tested also, right? Because, I mean, you might have it and not know, and then grandma comes even though you've been quarantining, and then you give it to her. Well, a 14 days tight quarantine is pretty good assurance. If you can get a test in there before Thanksgiving, even better. But remember, a test shows you what your status is on only that one day. Really, masking, social distancing, avoiding large groups, staying home is really better. But better yet, put off uh, Thanksgiving all getting together. Do a lot of FaceTime or Zooming. Yeah, it's depressing. I miss my I miss my parents. I haven't seen them um, in person in you know since this began. But we're going to forgo it this year. Um, many college students will soon head home for the holidays, uh, and they might be carrying along more than just dirty laundry. Uh, any suggestions for families uh, on how to reduce the risk of spread from an asymptomatic college student? Well, that's the same story. We'd like that college student to remain rather separate from the family when they come home, limit those hugs and kisses, and uh, if the student was tested before they got home, all the better. But nonetheless, separation for a while while that student gets home. So let's assume that somebody is taking all these precautions, the family is quarantining, other members of the family are quarantining, they're still planning on getting together. Which is less risky for traveling? Driving or flying? Oh, that's the easier. Tra- uh, traveling by car is much less risky because you have total control of the environment. You can get takeout food, run into the restroom, do a lot of good hand hygiene, use a wipe on that gasoline pump, and you can control that environment. But if you're traveling by air or bus or train, you're subject to what everybody else around you is doing. They may not be masked. They're getting awfully close. So... Travel by car if you must travel. And, and Professor, we, uh, we know that get-togethers, even small ones, uh, can spread the virus. In New Jersey alone, five coronavirus outbreaks were linked to Halloween parties. The new CDC guidelines for small gatherings include requiring everyone to wear a mask, even outdoors, avoiding direct contact, including handshakes and hugs, keeping music levels down to avoid people singing or trying to shout over the noise, avoiding potluck-style gatherings, and having one person serve all the food so multiple people are not handling the serving utensils. Is there anything else you can think of to add to the list? <laughs> Stay apart if you can, wear that mask, and enjoy Thanksgiving, even though it's a COVID Thanksgiving, Jake. All right, Dr. William Schaffner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.